Chapter 8 Chernobyl's Radiant Future There was a gentle breeze that night too, at once gentle and terrifying, you could say, and none yet knew what message it carried as it blew first north and then to the west and east. But before the wind reached the people, it headed higher over the mountains, as if for fun, and there it blew wild and fresh, but still deadly in the night, before dropping towards the early hours towards the valley, finally slipping triumphantly towards the roofs and domes of the city. Madeleine Hesserus, on Chernobyl, in the Elephant's Foot, 2016. Along with fifty or so other passengers, I alight from the packed coach for a brief break-up by the barriers. After a two-hour ride from Kiev, we have finally arrived at the Chernobyl Exclusion Zone, the over 500-square-kilometre area surrounding the site of the 1986 nuclear meltdown. Outside the barriers is a green tank on which a logo has been painted. ChernobylTour.com Behind it is a kiosk selling sweets, coffee, snacks, and a rich assortment of tourist knickknacks on the disaster theme, mugs, fridge magnets, t-shirts, and postcards. Over the years, Chernobyl has attracted growing numbers of visitors from around the world hungry for genuine and unique experiences. Two years before, the zone had 30,000 visitors. In 2018, it was double that number. And in 2019, after the Hollywood series on the environmental disaster, over 100,000. Today, the Chernobyl Zone, the burial ground of the Soviet Union's high-tech dreams, follows the market logic of the tourist industry. For 100 euro per person, visitors can bring themselves face-to-face -face with a continually present, authentic but controlled danger. Geiger counters are distributed at an extra charge, and the level of radioactivity that each visitor's body receives is noted at the end of the day in a kind of commemorative certificate with an official stamp. There are also yellow protective suits on sale at the entrance. They have no practical function, they just look cool on social media. The representation of the zone as a completely abandoned industrial landscape is also only partly accurate. The city of Chernobyl is mainly evacuated, but people working in the area still occupy a number of buildings. There are hotels for overnight stays, and a few hundred people have returned to their homes in the zone's scattered villages, sometimes in breach of the regulations. Some 3,000 people work in the area. The radioactive particles have sunk into the ground at a rate of a few centimetres a year, and now, say the guides, lie at half a metre under the surface. In general, levels of radioactivity in the zone are three or four times greater than normally found in nature, but with spots of higher concentration in places that the tourist guides point out to visitors with habitual ease. At our first stop by the barriers, we get to stroll around what was once a rural village, Runya Verisnya, a cluster of small houses with space for animals and a playground with gaily coloured climbing frames. Nature has slowly eaten its way into these homes, which are surrounded by rickety fences, brushwood, shrubs and trees. Their furnishings bear witness to a simple 1980s Soviet modernity, and their floors are covered with shattered window panes and abandoned shoes. 
on the walls of peeling paint, some pictures, portraits of previous owners, and crumbling 1986 calendars. During a single moment 35 years ago, the life of the village was frozen in a grimace of death that reminds us of the ephemerality of our own lives. One day the spirit will leave our bodies, and they will lie there, growing cold and livid. How did the events that led to the evacuation of this vast area start? The official story about the world's worst nuclear disaster actually began in neither the Moscow media nor the communiques from the Kiev authorities, but at Radio Upland, a local Swedish radio station of all places. When chemist Clifford Robinson arrived at work at the Forsmark nuclear power plant at 7am on the 28th of April 1986 and passed through the security gates, he set off the alarm. More than anything else, it was the engineer's shoes that gave the high radioactivity reading. Suspecting a leak, Forsmark promptly evacuated 600 workers from the plant. Radio Upland reported on the incident that morning, with more Swedish and foreign news channels following suit during the day. But from Ukraine SSR, there was silence. Nothing was to be said before the party had given the go-ahead to confirm that something had occurred and how it was to be interpreted. Ironically, the cause of the radioactive emission that the international media reported was a safety test to see whether, during an involuntary shutdown of Reactor 4, the turbines could produce enough electricity to run the cooling pumps until the backup generator took over. The delay between a generator shutdown and the backup generator reaching full power had been identified as a potential safety risk. This suspicion would prove correct. The reactor was an older Soviet RBMK, in which the power output is stepped up and dampened by movable control rods made of boron with graphite tips and cooled by water pumps. The model was outdated and the gauges unreliable. For instance, the stability of the control rods was registered 50 metres from the control room. The test had been planned to take place on the night of the 25th of April 1986. It began with the control room workers reducing the reactor's power. But then word came from the authorities that another power plant had been taken out of service. So, to compensate for the power loss, the test was postponed. For the rest of the day, Reactor 4 ran on half power, which compromised the stability of the process. Just before midnight of the 26th, the test resumed. The safety system was disengaged and the control room pulled the output all the way down. Several things then happened. On account of the lower power, the reactor had accumulated xenon-135, a surplus of the fission byproduct that slows the nuclear reaction. The surplus led to an even further reduction in power, which dropped so low that the process became difficult to control. At 1am, the control room staff expressed concerns about the risk of instability. Chief Engineer Anatoly Dyatlov decided that the test was to be carried out regardless. All they had to do was grab the controls and turn the power back up. At 1.19, on the 26th of April 1986, the decisive phase began. The reactor power was down at 7% and needed to be raised quickly. So Dyatlov ordered an unusually large number of control rods to immediately be extracted from the reactor. 
This was a departure from the safety regulations, and to do it, they had to bypass the safety features. With the rods removed, there was a sudden power surge, and within minutes, the reactor was out of control. The control rods began jumping hysterically up and down, and the cooling water that had been pumped into the hot reactor vaporized instantly, causing enough pressure to burst the water pipes. At 1.23, in what was now an emergency, the control room tried to restabilize the system by reinserting the rods. But the rising temperatures caused them to jam halfway. The cooling pumps malfunctioned, and for a few seconds, there was what sounded like a muffled bellowing coming from inside the reactor. Then an explosion shook the building. A few seconds later, there was another loud boom. The core exploded. The reinforced concrete ceiling split open, lumps of graphite, pipes and fuel rods flew into the air and landed on the fractured roof and around the site. Cascades of water contaminated with radioactive material spurted out of the reactor building towards an area of woodland a few hundred metres off. A nightmare-like fire took hold of the plant, while dust containing cesium, strontium and other radioactive particles rose like a plume into the sky and started to drift northward in the wind. The fire service of the nearby city of Pripyat rushed to the scene but the firemen had neither the resources nor the proper protective equipment to do the job. Party officials and engineers held a crisis meeting to hammer out different strategies and response options. With the nuclear fuel posing a severe threat to the water table and the Pripyat River, the source of Kiev's water supply, controlling the narrative was a top priority. The telephone lines from Pripyat were shut down to prevent the spread of rumour and panic. The situation could be used by powers hostile to the Soviet people, bent on undermining political unity. The fire was to rage on for another ten days. After a disordered 24 hours, the magnitude of the disaster finally dawned on the crisis group. The conventional routines of firefighting, military intervention and information control were not going to suffice. The incident was something exceptional, an acute danger to the entire region and, possibly, humanity itself. The crisis group contacted the Soviet Prime Minister, Nikolai Rizhkov, who, almost 36 hours after the accident, gave the go-ahead for the evacuation and 115,000 residents of the area were told that they were to be immediately but temporarily removed. Three hours later, at 3.30pm on the afternoon of the 27th of April, the last bus rolled out of Pripyat. The prosperous city of optimism stood there, silent and deserted, along with the polished and colourful attractions in its soon-to-open pleasure park. Witnesses later said that there was something biblical in the whole experience. A people on an exodus from one realm to another. Many turned to the book of Revelation, in which the end of the world is heralded by seven angels blowing seven trumpets. Then the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water, because it was made bitter. Wormwood. The translation of the Russian word Chernobyl. 
enhancing the impression that the nuclear meltdown was the arrival of the apocalypse as foreseen in the Holy Scriptures. Around a thousand military reservists were enlisted to clear away radioactive rubble from around and on top of the reactor, a party of them replacing remote-controlled robots that had malfunctioned. On the 27th, helicopters were flown in to drop sand, boron and clay over the burning building. One of them crashed. On the 1st of May 1986, Labor Day was celebrated with the customary parades and flag-waving children in Kiev. It was not until a fortnight later that General Secretary Gorbachev issued a public statement about the accident. Eventually, almost 400,000 people were to be evacuated from the zone, which even extended beyond the border to Belarus, 10 kilometers or so away from Reactor 4. When it came to holding people to account, those responsible were dragged to the bar so that scapegoats could be identified in a ritual purging of the system. Those who had betrayed the system's lofty principles were hung out for public exhibition in what was to be one of the very last Soviet show trials. Outside the city of Chernobyl stands a concrete monument depicting a small team of military firefighters in action. The title, A Monument to Those Who Saved the World, bespeaks their heroic status. The statue itself is an ungainly concrete assemblage, more a cross between a competent social realist monument and the papier-mâché models that usually emanate from classroom art lessons. I'm taken aback at first by the way my guide, a highly qualified chemist, seems so moved by it. But rather than the design, what she reads in it is a message that tells not only of 50 fallen men, but also of the 600,000 citizens who served as liquidators, deployed to clean up the zone. Their reward was a medal, pension benefits, and an average of 120 millisieverts of gamma radiation. Due to the emotional stress of their task, many of them also suffered severe post-traumatic symptoms. How many souls did the accident ultimately claim? The question is both mooted and politicised. The immediate death toll of irradiated and fallen firefighters and engineers was around 50. The WHO, UN and IAEA concluded that a total of 4,000 people could have had their lives cut short by Chernobyl. This estimation, however, is famously questionable. Over the 34 years that have passed, data has shown that the health effects of the radioactivity itself were much milder than what had at first been feared. According to Geraldine Thomas, Professor of Molecular Pathology at London's Imperial College, The Guardian, 26th of April 2011, an increase in thyroid cancer is the only proven radiobiological effect. But, by a quarter of a century after the accident, only 15 of 6,000 such cases had ended in death. In 2008, the United Nations Committee on the Effects of Atomic Radiation published a report stating that there is no scientific evidence of a link between a higher incidence of cancer, mortality or non-fatal diseases and the radioactivity itself. Nor did the feared increase in leukaemia materialise. However, epidemiological studies also showed that a great many lives were lost to prolonged psychological damage. 
Above all, being evacuated and press-ganged into the cleaning-up operation caused a national trauma and immeasurable personal grief for the people whose lives had been torn apart. During the following decades, there were some 50,000 premature deaths amongst the zone's displaced people. In addition to this, according to the International Atomic Energy Agency, there were 100,000 to 200,000 abortions made in Europe after the accident, many of which were performed on account of the professed medical risk that radioactivity posed to the growing fetus. The area around the Pripyat rivers has special significance in the history of Ukraine. It was here where the country's oldest dialects emerged and the regional Finns are usually considered the cradle of the East Slavic tribes that eventually dispersed. In the 1700s, Polish nobles enticed Jews to colonize the city of Chernobyl, which grew into an important Hasidic center. At the start of the 20th century, Jews comprised one-fifth of the city's inhabitants. But during the Second World War, their numbers were halved by Germany's military executioners. Today, many Orthodox Jews go on pilgrimage to Chernobyl to light candles and sing psalms in the synagogue in homage to the dead and the city's legacy. The city of Pripyat, on the other hand, was a new creation. Raised as nuclear power expanded in the 1970s, a few kilometers north of the site of the fourth reactor. It was a model city for the engineering elite set to harness atomic power for the Soviet people. The city of 50,000 was a modernist exemplar, but this did not stop it from having its fair share of social problems. Boat and bicycle thefts, drunken brawls, assaults, murders and bank robberies. When Gorbachev launched his transparency reforms, discontent with the authorities also rose to the surface in Pripyat. In 1985, a minor riot in the city saw cars overturned in protest. Yet Pripyat was still a city with a skilled population, unusual prosperity and high salaries. All manners of facilities were available here. Sports arenas, a palace of culture, a concert hall, daycare centres, shops and libraries. To crown the work, a pleasure park was to be opened on the 1st of May 1986, complete with a shooting range, dodging cars and the Ferris wheel that would become horror tourism's most well-exposed symbol. Today, brushwood, trees and shrubs have reclaimed the site. Its paving broken apart by tree roots. A birch rises up through the stone steps to the Palace of Culture in scornful mockery of the attempts of human city building to claim authority over nature. What was once a sports facility has been taken over by pines and willows. The fauna has flourished, and boars, foxes, badgers and owls are the new lords of the fens, and the population of grey wolves has grown to such an extent that biologists have warned of the risk of mutant wolves infiltrating other areas. And after reintroduction, wild horses also graze the meadows. The daycare centre in the village of Kopachi makes for one of the day's eeriest sights. A dark, derelict place littered with dusty dolls, toys, and empty, rusting beds. The environment is straight out of a horror film and cries out to be described in detail. But I demure. The narrative has something too orchestrated about it, something that has become too much of a guided tour for foreigners. 
and the dolls in the different houses in the zone appear to me a little too numerous and too consciously arranged for the suspicion not to nag that they have gradually been placed there by obliging prop managers. Maybe I'm being insensitive, cynical. Maybe I've played too many computer games in post-apocalyptic settings to quell the feeling that Chernobyl has been modelled on these rather than vice versa. Or maybe there is something about the commercial exploitation of today's experience-hungry society that obstructs the genuine sorrow that inhabits the environment. In all events, the zone is far from bereft of human presence nowadays. Gradually, it has been refilled by civilizational intention. During the cleanup years, several new transport routes were laid. The battle against the isotopes eventually took on the character of a kind of civil war, in which the liquidators cleansed surfaces with soap and water and buried contaminated machinery. All of this required investments in new roads and logistics. Since 1986, the zone has been infested with looters. Already in the early weeks of the disaster, people broke into flats occupied by party bigwigs and bosses. When they had plundered these, they took to pilfering machines, metals, and other material that could be sold, often still contaminated. When Ukraine's economy collapsed after independence, the acute poverty of the 1990s heralded a new, larger wave of looting, with scavengers ending up stealing copper cables and other fixed infrastructural products. Just a few kilometres from Reactor 4 is a canteen serving tray lunches, where tourists and workers congregate around the tables in one common hubbub. And half a year after my visit to Chernobyl, the actual control room in Reactor 4 was also open to paid, short-term visitors keen on experiencing the heart of darkness, where the levels of radioactivity can still be 40,000 times above normal. Nuclear power had its day in the area, and a park for solar energy has symbolically been established in the zone instead. In an attempt to exploit an alcohol market constantly thirsting for unique mental spices, an entrepreneur has been distilling vodka from local grain. And President Zelensky has talked of lifting the Chernobyl brand. With tourist revenue equivalent to 10 million euro a year, 2019, he held a speech this year launching plans to establish green corridors and radioactivity-free footpaths. It's enough to make one suspect that a misery park for large-scale tourism is not far on the horizon. An expression of creative pragmatism or cynicism? It's a matter of taste, of course. But at least the passage of time has been resurrected in the zone. From a social perspective, Chernobyl is still a source of energy that, above all, vivifies the corpse of a deformed ideology. Communism was a modernist delusion, the global successes of which, during the 1900s, can seem hard to comprehend. But they had a very logical explanation. The communist movement had asked the right questions, identified the right problems, inequality, ruthless exploitation, colonialism, and the rapid development of industrial capitalism. And with this, a poverty transferred from family, clan, and communities to towns and cities with no graspable sense of unity. To all this, communism had a morally splendid response and a useless solution. 
The grand global experiment carried on for 72 years until 1989. Could it be said that the centralist culture of silence was blown sky-high when the reactor detonated and spread radioactivity around parts of Europe and shame around the USSR? It's a nice conceptual image, and to some extent relevant in Ukraine, but capitalist Russia has proved itself ready and willing to handle similar disasters in a way that is less transparent than during Gorbachev's time. As late as August 2019, reports came of six deaths at a missile testing site in Arkhangelsk, where the Russian authorities hid the circumstances from the outside world by, amongst other measures, closing radiation measurement centres and serving the world's media with reassuring messages. Lorraine Annalina, Dagens Nieter, 2019 can one then see Chernobyl as a necessary consequence of Soviet dysfunctionality? Such an explanation might seem ideologically attractive, but by that token, should Fukushima also not be seen as a symbol of capitalist failure? Mikhail Gorbachev, the former party leader, has claimed that Chernobyl and its aftermath were what brought the USSR down. The main reason, he has claimed, is that the cleanup operation drained so many economic resources and so much energy that they were unable to keep up the arms race with the USA. This, however, should be taken with a large bucket of iodized salt, as it is a convenient way for Gorbachev to blame the collapse of the Soviet Union on an unforeseen incident beyond his responsibility. In fact, the transparency that he launched in the USSR constituted a normalization and a democratization that eventually proved incompatible with communist centralism. It is not unlikely that the story of Chernobyl, had it happened under Joseph Stalin's watch, would have been hushed up, and instead of the mass evacuation, life in Pripyat would have carried on as normal after a cursory washdown of the worst affected areas, the distribution of iodine tablets and a few apposite executions of overly outspoken experts. Maybe this is exactly what has happened. In Lake Karachai, in the Urals, large quantities of radioactive material were released over a 10-year period from 1951 to 1962, on a scale 24 times greater than Chernobyl this disaster is largely unheard of. Here, too, people close to the nearby city of Chelyabinsk, where nuclear waste was stored and where the cooling system malfunctioned, had to be evacuated, 11,000 people in all. Chernobyl was less a cause of the Soviet Union's collapse than a symbol of this fact, which the perestroika and glasnost of the 1980s had already heralded. By 1986, the USSR had become very much part of the rest of the world. The delayed evacuation order was mainly down to the initial denial of the local leaders, but in the new Soviet Union, the TV news was able to broadcast films of the helicopter firefighting operation. When a fire started in Reactor 2 in 1991, it was closed for good. In 1996, Reactor 1 was decommissioned on account of inferior technology, and finally, after a series of international negotiations, Reactor 3 was closed down in December 2000. The narrative struggle. Yes. 
The term must be seized upon to understand our mediatized times and the rules of play it operates under. And when it comes to the story of Chernobyl, it is likely that it will be understood and interpreted through the lens of the 2019 TV series written by Craig Mazin and directed by Johan Rink, the former Swedish rapper who performed under the stage name Stacker Bow. But what truths did this prize-winning series lay down? Generally speaking, it can be said to be about the moral awakening of a communist bigwig and his qualms over an environmental disaster and some scientists' fight for truth in a mendacious system. That Chernobyl takes dramatic liberties in the detail is perhaps not problematic for the historiography itself, even if they at times are turbochargedly irritating like the ridiculous fabrication of letting the miners who dug out the ground beneath the reactor before casting a huge concrete slab work entirely naked, why would a team of workers take off their underpants to cool themselves down? The docudrama takes liberties, but also establishes a narrative that the world will remember. Party official Shabina is depicted as a brutal party gangster, forever on the verge of threatening murder, who gradually undergoes a moral epiphany. New Yorker magazine's Soviet-born Masha Gessen, 4th of April 2019, was one of few critics of this portrayal. Her objection being that whereas the actual Soviet condition was defined by resignation and implicit threats, the TV series had the party bosses engage in carousing gangsterism and colourful confrontations, which in her mind crossed the line into falsehood. Hollywood's Chernobyl was a huge hit and was praised for its characterization and its eye for detail, but its telling for TV was gaudy and brutal. The reality low-key, oxygen-depleted, poor. The story of Chernobyl is still political dynamite. In Russia, the characterization of Soviet bungling was considered an insult. The production of an alternative Russian Chernobyl film was soon announced. There would be no capitulation to the Western narrative. Chernobyl was proof of the uselessness of the societal narrative in a relaxed Soviet society, the shortcomings of which had long been all too evident. A joke did the rounds in the country. How many kolkhoz workers does it take to milk a cow? Twenty. Four to hold the teats and sixteen to pump the legs. It was a pithy picture of the workings of a planned economy, whose helpless decline into apathy was met by general stoic equanimity. The Chernobyl disaster, both the technological and the communicative, threw a sudden international spotlight onto the dimness of lethargy. It was also the spark that ignited a wave of civil activism, a belief in the power of individual initiative and popular movements to change society. After the accident, environmental activists in Ukraine organized protests that drew tens of thousands of demonstrators. These movements then morphed into organizations with wider demands regarding democratic and systemic change. When we finish our lunch, we stroll around the deserted city of Pripyat, where the slow decay of the housing blocks makes them more dangerous to explore by the year. Mold on the walls has been replaced by moss, cobwebs and bird's nests, while creepers replace the fading wallpaper patterns. Flakes of ceiling paint and rustling leaves carpet the floors, 
the stone slabs and wooden boards of which have succumbed to the most vigorous trees. Deer and boar roam rooms and stairwells between dusk and dawn, and in their feces grow flowers that the rays of the sun nourish in the spring. So what does Chernobyl symbolise? Is this a ridiculous question? Is it even possible to paint an overall picture that explains why it concerns us? Here, it seems to me, that three separate narratives appear. The first one is about the backwardness and duplicity of the communist system that ended in nuclear catastrophe. Chernobyl, as the burial ground of the horrors and futility of the communist system, is a story that can also be tethered to the belief in nuclear power as a valuable source of energy. The second is about the dangers of nuclear power itself and its potential to contaminate vast areas of land and render them uninhabitable for centuries. It is not unlike a modern version of the Icarian myth about mankind's drive to constantly fly higher until our arrogance takes us too close to the sun and melts the wax of our wings to send us plummeting to our death into the sea. The third story is possibly the most emotive. It is the one told by the buildings of the zone about the transience of society. Our civilization is a thousand-year history centered on the urban norm, with its concentration, order, predictability, and protective walls, roofs, and streets. The zone's expansive environments are a unique reminder of what remains when humans have disappeared and nature has taken over. It is a timely story that points forward to today's environmental threats and corona pandemics that seem to catch us by surprise. The sight of this dystopian landscape has something consoling about it, a reminder of the ephemeral nature of our individual lives and of civilization. Just like Joseph Gandhi's and Gustave Doré's 19th century illustrations, Pripyat embodies a tale that can alleviate our desperate desire for fleeting accomplishment, status, and wealth. There are, then, multiple morals to the Chernobyl story, or myths, if you will, on state communism, on nuclear energy, on modernity, and perhaps on Ukraine's role as the permanent punchbag during all manners of grandiose superpower experiments. As we drive away from the zone's dystopic representation, I want to stay for a story in the margin on the symbolism that the evacuation holds for Ukraine in the 2020s. When the residents were herded into rusty buses back in May 1986, it was the beginning of a journey, an evacuation that is symbolically still happening towards Europe, towards new, more honest and human attitudes, and with a sense of people's ability to renovate society from the bottom up. On the way back from today's excursion, all visitors are screened for radioactivity. The coach passes the zone's barriers and we alight for a break before the return to Kiev. I exchange some hryvnia for a bright green luminous condom and a fridge magnet of a gas-masked liquidator as a souvenir. The driver then starts the engine and with slight discomposure, I leave the site of history's worst nuclear disaster. Ukraine deserves every single coin it can milk from it. <laughs>